Welcome to PeerPoint Perspectives, the securities finance podcast delivering commentary from the best, brightest and most innovative people in the world of securities lending, repo, collateral management and related areas. PeerPoint Perspectives is brought to you by the consulting team at PeerPoint Financial. So now over to your hosts. Hello and welcome to episode three of PeerPoint Perspectives. I'm your host, Roy Zimmerhansel, and practice lead at PeerPoint. This is the second in a two-part episode about securities lending relationships, and I have two of my PeerPoint partners joining me, John Arneson and Jeroen Bakker, to talk about all things relationship. In the first part of the podcast, we looked at what lenders think about regarding borrowers. Now I want to delve into the flip side. What do borrowers want from lenders? And as the borrowers are the ones that pay the fees, I think it's critical that lenders understand what borrowers want. So Jeroen, we decided that maybe there's no such thing as an ideal borrower. It's more a case of best fit for each lender. But is there such thing as an ideal lender? What do borrowers want and has that changed? Thanks, Roy. Well, it definitely has changed. Historically, it always been the cheapest level for specials in return for GC balance. So the bigger the balance you had, the bigger uh, allocation of uh, specials you would get in return. However, post uh, Basel III, the increased cost of capital uh, made banks and borrowers uh, use their internal inventory more optimal i.e. they were looking internally, what is on my balance sheet, what can I use? And as a result, and as a general reduction in GC, uh, there has not been as much uh, GC demand uh, lately. As a result, the um, specials for GC equilibrium is uh, is no longer working. So fast forward uh, 10 years, uh, the need for specials and hard to borrow is still there. That hasn't changed. So. What makes a lender an ideal lender? Well, uh, breadth of supply and stable inventory. If every locate that the borrower hits with the lender gets filled, that makes it an ideal lender. If then we don't get recalled, it's even better. So that combined with low haircuts on the collateral and um, highly rated beneficial owners in order to uh, reduce your credit usage that again is a, is another nudge. Um, on the financing side, of course, it is collateral flexibility combined with the possibility to trade in term transactions. Collateral, I'm saying, uh, again, preferably via a third-party collateral manager uh, instead of a bilateral uh, collateral uh, movements. And then, um, in order to uh, manage the liquidity coverage ratio, the LCR, and the leverage ratio. It is important for banks to trade with agents that can lend high quality liquid assets, HQLAs, uh, in term, three months, six months, sometimes even 12 months. Um, So in short, it is on the special side, it is the um, breadth of supply and stability, and especially on the financing side, it is the availability of HQLAs and the ability to term uh, transact uh, in one month, three months, six months, 12 months deals. Okay, all right, thanks for that, Drew. And so you talk just like a borrower. 
Now, let's. <laughs> there's about there's about fifteen different things I think that you raised in that uh, segment. So so let let's go back and and uh, revisit a few of those. You talked about GC multiple times. What do you mean by GC? What what is it? What are we what are we talking about here? Sorry, Roy. Yeah, that's when you are 20 years in the business. GC uh, stands for general collateral, which means that is the uh, highly liquid uh, assets that everybody has. So those are the, the S&P 500 stocks. Those are the the, the big uh, multinationals, the big blue chips. All lenders have the inventory, which means that there is a high supply, probably not a lot of demand for them as a result low fees. So that's what we call general collateral. And thank, thanks for that explanation. I think that's pretty clear. So John, why does a lender care about the, the or, or why did they in the past? Because we'll look at it in two frames. One is, as Jeroen said, it's changed over time. <clears throat> so we'll look at then and now. So talk about general collateral, John, and why it used to be important and, and whether it still is today. If you look at any of the um, data providers in terms of fees, you will soon realize or come to the conclusion that this entire market is based on general collateral. It's the highest proportion of loan activities. So therefore, it's always important to move your assets because that's what you've been mandated to do by your client. And as Jerome pointed out, there used to be a relationship between a ratio of GC versus hard to borrow stocks. That clearly went out of the window, as Jerome pointed out. So I personally never really liked the term general collateral because there's still a fee that I'm going to charge. The fact that you're actually asking for a security means that you want that security. Now, you may call it general collateral, but actually it's specifically required to borrow that particular stock. To me, GC is you asking me for give me the S&P 500 or give me the FTSE 250 and I'll decide which assets go into it. That to me is a general collateral trade. When you ask me for Vodafone, it isn't. It may be a general collateral fee, but I'm going to probably push it a little bit harder. Um, given that general collateral is not in demand in the same way, it goes back to this issue of a lender having to decide where it sits in the world. Because if you sit on billions and billions of supply that is deemed to be general collateral, you're going to have to be creative about very small spread fees. And if you're doing non-cash, it's just going to be a fee. But maybe you have a cash reinvestment opportunity if you're doing cash, whereby you can generate the revenue from the reinvestment vehicle instead of the loan. We all saw what happened when that got out of control in 2007. So I'm not suggesting we go back there, but that you have to find a way of being relevant. Okay. Thank, thanks, John. Um, so, Jeroen, we then talked about, I think you mentioned uh, internalization. So can you explain to us a little bit about what is internalization at a borrower and what are the internal sources that they've used to replace the GC borrowing that they have done from agent lenders? Sure. Well, historically, as I said, that uh, banks, uh, borrowers didn't really think what was on their balance sheet because balance sheet was cheap, so it didn't really matter. So if in return they could borrow well, what we call general collateral or say uh, 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 blue chip stocks, um, they would do it because in return they would get a special. With the implementation of Basel III, of course, capital has become much more expensive. 
and banks are looking at the balance sheet in a very different way. And they will look what they will say is trying to sweat their assets, as they say, and owned stock, so uh, proprietary uh, positions, and they'll see what they can do with those. Um, as a result, they will, yeah, as I said, they will, they will try to manage that internally. So if, for instance, a, uh, a, a, a convertible trading desk is long a particular stock and the stock loan desk is looking for that particular stock, they will internalize that stock instead of the stock loan desk going out to the market and borrowing it. Right. So in the old days, that's how people would have just done it. I, I have a I have a borrower request from one of my hedge fund clients. I'll just go to the market, grab that. And now you're saying the first port of coal will be to look and check the internal inventory from various trading desks and the long supply from hedge fund clients that the prime brokers are able to access. Indeed. Okay, great. One, one thing that uh, I'm, I'm curious about uh, exploring a little bit, Jeroen, is uh, I know in the old days, everything was about size. It was all about, you know, am I first, am I second, am I third? Um, how, how important is it to a borrower uh, to know where they rank in an agent lender's list in terms of prioritization? Really funny that you mentioned that, Roy. In, in the days before I was working for a borrower, I was working as an agent or as a lender. And back in Amsterdam, when people started visiting, the first question that they had when you put them in a, in a meeting room is, okay, what number am I on your list? And how do I get to number one? And we're like, well, <laughs> yeah, you're number 10 and you need to raise this amount of balance to, to become your top three. And they will go, okay, thank you very much, went away. And that was it. So it was the old question always like, okay, fine. For them, for the borrowers, it was always, okay, the higher I am in your, in your ranking, the better allocation I get for certain types of transactions. Again, that has gone out of the window. Um, these days, it's all about the uh, cost of funding, which means collateral flexibility. So the ideal lender is that lender that has the capability to accept a wide range of collateral, as well as the capacity to switch in different kinds of collateral as well. So that means that what John was saying earlier when he went to his clients and said, well, I have this particular trade, will you willing to accept this kind of collateral? Again, the borrower would have gone to John and said, okay, fine, we have this kind of assets on our balance sheet. Can you help us get rid of it? Or can you help us to pledge this as collateral with you? Um, that means that indeed the lender that has the, the, the capability to accept the collateral or the flexibility to uh, to get in and out of collateral. So if you give a different name, he will go back and say after a few days, okay, fine, we can accept this. That will be ideal for us. Um, so what kinds of collateral are more important than others? Then is of course your next question. And uh, yeah, that is very different for, for each borrower. Uh, it more or less, it comes down to uh, what the borrower has on the book and what is the cheapest for him to give as collateral. Okay, so that's that's obviously a key thing. And as you say, that will depend on individual firms. W what kind of variables? Is that Will it be different from, say, a firm that does 
uh, a lot of synthetic business versus another firm that might be more of a, a fixed income house or another firm that might be equity prime brokerage? I mean, is, are those the sorts of things that, that make a difference? Yes. So if, if you are a uh, market maker in uh, high yield bonds, then yes, you have high yield bonds on your book, and and, and they, these are quite often quite quite expensive in regards to the uh, to the LCR. So um, yes, you are trying to find someone that accepts high yield bonds as collateral. And and can I now turn that to John because this is a continuum, right? So if that's what it, it kind of goes, the borrower's firm wants to finance these assets goes to the securities finance desk and says, you have to find an outlet that will accept this as collateral or be able to use it in repo transactions. So you go to your borrowing community and say, lender, you need to take this asset if you're gonna do more business with me. So John, John, you talked about this earlier. You said you would get uh, requests from borrowers. Do you want to just do a just a quick snapshot of of what that practically means in terms of what the agent will do and what a lender has to do and and take us through that? So, underlying beneficial owners have their own acceptable suite of collateral. Um, that will then translate into the agent lending bank will have a credit department that has assigned you a uh, permissible forms of collateral. And depending on how sophisticated they are, it could be a sort of notional number. So it's simply you can take X million of, of this asset class. Uh, my, my last employer was quite clever in this sense, the way that credit came about in that you could take almost anything as collateral that was still approved, that was still indemnified. But the, the, it, was ba it was a weighted based uh, consumption of the credit line. So the, the more... The, the further down the credit curve you went in terms of the form of collateral, the higher use of your credit line was used up. So you could take high yield assets on occasion, as Jerome pointed out, but I couldn't take many of them because it wiped out the line quickly. In contrast to that, if I took government debt as collateral, I never used any line whatsoever because of the because of the um, margin or the haircut. So in theory, <laughs> we actually had a situation where we did so much HQLA lending that I wasn't using any of the line and credit turned around and said, hang on, based on the way we calculate this, you, it's it's you, there is no limit to what you could do. We'll have to rethink that, and they did. Roy, if I could just um, go back slightly and ask Tarun a question. He mentioned earlier, looking through the agent lender to the beneficial owner and the credit quality of those, of, of those um, institutions. I became very aware in the last few years, Tarun, that, that the consumption of risk-weighted assets from a borrower became very, very important, right? And, and it was managed at the sort of tr transaction level, at uh, the trading desk level, not at the top of the house. Is it is it fair to say that you do look at the consumption of RWA when deciding to borrow from certain underlying beneficial owners? And if that isn't passing a certain hurdle rate, you in fact couldn't do the transaction? Um, that is correct, uh, John. So. If it's done properly, and I have to say, I don't think that all borrowers are as sophisticated uh, in that, is that you would calculate your return on uh, RWAs uh, per transaction. So if you do a certain type of transaction and you find out that the beneficial owner has, uh, say, a unfavorable credit rating, the actual transaction itself might 
be actually bleeding. So it might be uh, costing you money instead of generating you money. So at that particular time, you will say, okay, I'll try to avoid a transaction or I will try to find securities from a beneficial owner with a uh, higher rated, uh, which is a higher rated entity. Um, this uh, combined as well with the jurisdiction of the beneficial owner. So certain uh, non-favorable uh, netable jurisdictions are shied away from uh, for this same reason. Is so, Jeroen, can I? Uh, yeah. I just want to pick one, up one point that Jeroen made, John, if I can. Uh, Jeroen, you said when I do a trade and then I find out that the beneficial owner is from a, a jurisdiction or has that that doesn't have a netting opinions, clean netting opinions, or doesn't have a favorable credit line. That might sound strange to some people. Why is it that a borrower would do a trade and then find out who they're doing it with? Yeah, this is uh, this is the age-old question about agent lending disclosure. So when borrowers transact uh, deals with agent lenders, they often will transact in bulk. So it will be, for instance, I do uh, one million shares of Vodafone from agent lender A. Deal done, deal settled. Then after the actual settlement date, my risk department will receive from the, the agent lender the actual uh, list of beneficial owners where I borrowed from. So only at that particular time, the risk department can make their risk calculations based on the credit rating of the beneficial owner. And only after that particular time, some flags will get raised because I, A, there is not sufficient credit uh, on that particular beneficial owner, or B, the calculation of the RWAs uh, have come up uh, and with a well, with a negative result, i.e., the, 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 the trade is, uh, is bleeding uh, money. So, yes, it is what we call ALD, and hopefully, the as we mentioned earlier, the SFTR is something that will... Um, that will help um, bring uh, these kind of uh, transactions uh, to the to the, to the next uh, next level. I would hope. Right. Th thanks for explaining that, John. Uh, you wanted to carry on. Uh, yes, it, it, I was actually going to make a different point, but I want to pick up from what Jerim just said. That actually lends itself then, if you take this thing through to its logical conclusion that all transactions should be disclosed at the time of trading so you can understand what the effect is during immediately and, it, and again sftr is going to have to be allocated pretty much on trade date because you've only got 24 hours to report so do you think that sftr reporting actually does away with ald because frankly 24 hours is way too late to assign your the calculation of the consumption of credit and that in fact bulk lending um, is, is problematic. Uh, yes and no. So I would still consider bulk lending to be possible. However, you're right that at the point of actual transacting, so not settlement, but trade date, the actual allocation of the beneficial owners should be known to the borrower. Quite often, you end up in a situation where the agent or the beneficiary owner doesn't want to get disclosed to the borrower uh, and only to the front office from different kind of commercial reasons. 
and only want to get exposed to the uh, or disclosed to the uh, to the risk department of, of the borrower. But if a borrower takes this seriously, and they should, they would at one particular point will be able to load all the beneficial owner either on a coded basis or on an online basis into their trading system and see exactly how much they're dealing with which beneficial owner instead of just what they do currently do do a bulk transaction with a lender xyz right so look i i think that is the whole issue of the process from end to end the automation of it the exclusion of uh, counterparties that have no or poor credit rating uh, or have utilized their full credit limit or from non-clean uh, netting opinion jurisdictions. I think that's a really interesting end-to-end -end continuum discussion, which we can have at some other point. So, Jeroen, I, I just want to uh, really wrap things up here. So, uh, when we looked at, at borrowers uh, from a lender's perspective, it seemed to be more a question of finding the right relationship rather than an ideal one. Can you now, on th in the other direction, uh, what are the three most important things a borrower is looking at from a lender? And is it more sort of consistent? You know, is it, do borrowers have sort of simple requests that they're looking from borrowers, or is it equally nuanced? No, I, I would think in general it is it is it is quite simple. First, of course, it is collateral flexibility. Uh, the ability to assist the borrower with his capital requirements, that is utmost important because without the capital, there will be no transaction. Uh, secondly, it is stable inventory. So, of course, there will always be recalls, but if they can be limited or that they can minimize, that would, that would be already a, a huge help. And, and then thirdly, it is the ability to, to, to trade in term. So, either from a finance perspective, or we're talking about the, the LCR, but also in, in event-driven transactions where we're talking either uh, an M&A or a particular convertible arbitrage where the uh, ability to term the transaction up until the, the maturity of the, of the deal would help um, the borrower and as a result also uh, helps the borrower uh, generate uh, additional revenue for the lender. Right. Okay, thanks. So, any last thoughts on what we've discussed today? Uh, maybe, John, if I can turn to you first. Any any thoughts? From what Jeroen just said, it, it, struck, it struck me that um, not being recalled is obviously very important to a borrower. Equally, from an agent lender's point of view, your ability to substitute those transactions is, is vital to the borrower. And that goes back to our, where, how we kick this thing off in terms of what type of lender am I? And there is some clear um, relationship between being a very large lender with lots of supply and hopefully the ability to substitute when you, you instead of having to recall securities. So I th suspect that Jerome, you would put that on the list whereby if, if, a, if lenders can't substitute because of the structural setup where each individual client is now segregated, that becomes problematic because you can't move from one account to the other. So that was the only thing I, I was struck by in that conversation. And I think that's going to become more important going forward, not less so. 
Thanks, John. Uh, Jeroen, any last thoughts? Uh, well, we're talking about relationships and ideal relationships. Um, yeah, the question is, it does exist. I think, I think the real world is somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's not such a thing as an ideal relationship. Uh, however, understanding each other's point of view and realizing why lenders or why borrowers are asking certain things from one another will benefit the relationship greatly. That goes back to the flexibility and transparency where we discussed earlier. Um, and then there's, of course, as always, an existing different economical perspective. And that is that borrowers want to pay as less as possible and lenders want to receive as much as possible. So as long as both parties know that and as both parties can find a sweet spot where both parties are satisfied and as well as adhering to different regulatory requirements, I think that would define a good working relationship. Thanks, Tarun, And that's a wrap for this podcast. I hope this podcast and the last one where we explored both sides of the securities lending, borrowing lending relationship has given you insights into what's important to each side. I guess I'm not really that surprised, but it seems that irrespective of the angle that you look at it from, there is no such thing as an ideal partner. There is no one framework that you can tick all of the boxes and say, yes, this is an ideal borrower for all lenders or an ideal lender for all borrowers. There are, of course, common factors that each want to have across all of their relationships. But in terms of day-to-day business, focus and partnership, I think it's really a matter, as we say in the UK, of horses for courses. As I mentioned at the end of the first episode, a few of these ideas I think can be developed into podcasts, so watch this space. But we really want to be showing you and talking to you about the topics that you want to hear about. So if there's ideas, topics, or subjects you want to hear about, or guests you want us to have on the program, just let us know. Our contact details will be in the show notes. The next episode, we'll have our first external guest, and I'm really excited about interviewing him, but I'm going to keep that a secret for the moment. If you want to hear more from us, please subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. You can find us at www.peerpoint.info. We're on LinkedIn and Facebook as Peerpoint Financial Consulting, and on Twitter at PeerpointFC. Of course, all of these uh, links and descriptions will be in the show notes. I'm Roy Zimmerhansel, and I look forward to catching you next time.